want to welcome each of you here tonight. I've grown to love you over these last eight weeks and hope to keep up in association with you. By the way, our May conference on the 14th of May and Saturday is filling up really fast, so go ahead and register and make sure you get a seat and a name tag and all that. I'll send you instructions of what to do when you get there. You need to get there before 9 o'clock because we have this youth color guard with a kind of a ceremony with beautiful music and narrations and things. We're really trying to make this an entertaining event as well as a conference. Anyway, I want to again thank Mike and Nancy for arranging for the webcast and for the sound system and Robin Young for being our secretary, taking charge here. And we'll start. This is the last lecture out of a series of 24 over the last two years. All right, let's start with Jehovah's coming in the book of Isaiah. We're going to quote from Isaiah and Book of Mormon and New Testament and from Spencer's vision of the coming of the Lord. Isaiah 30, Behold Jehovah omnipotent coming from afar. His wrath is kindled, heavy as his grievance. His lips flow with indignation. His tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like a raging torrent that severs at the neck. He comes to sift the nations in the sieve of falsehood with an erring bridle on their jaws. He will try the people. That doesn't sound very friendly or happy, does it? But that's only half the story, right? Because there's redemption of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked. And this is the, the other side of the coin. So now the words in Isaiah, the, the wrath and grievance and, and lips and tongue and fire and indignation and breath and torrent, the sieve and bridle, these are all terms that denote the king of Assyria or the Antichrist, also called the king of Babylon. And so he, he's the precursor, really, to the Lord's coming. When you see him arise on the world stage, then you know that the Lord's coming is just a few years away. Because he basically conquers the world with military power and then has to be overthrown and the wicked destroyed. But he's the wicked one that destroys the wicked. But for you, that is for the ones the Lord is speaking to, there shall be singing as on the night when the festival commences and rejoicing of heart as when men, men march with flutes and drums and lyres on their way to the mountain of Jehovah, to the rock of Israel. A happy time for those coming in the Exodus to Zion. And likened to the ancient pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem from all around the land of Israel. Then Isaiah 63, which is, see later, it's quoted in the Doctrine and Covenants several times as well. Who is this coming from Edom in red stained garments? Now the word Edom is Adom, and Adom means red. And it's another name for Esau, who sold his birthright for a mess of red pottage. And so it's the Lord coming from Edom, which has been likened to the world in the scriptures, the world at large, the world of the wicked, the world of those people who sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, like their ancestors Esau did, or Esau is a type of them. And Basra was the main capital of Edom, and it was a cattle, cattle country, and so they often had these slaughters, and Isaiah picks up on that and talks about the slaughter in chapter 34 of Edom, of all the beasts of Edom. Pressing forward in the strength of his power, it is I who am mighty to save, announcing righteousness. And this is partly the strength of his power, it's partly the coming of the Lord, but the coming of the Lord is a whole series of events. It's not just a single event of his appearing. 
the coming of the Lord is that includes the king of Assyria's doing his thing. And so does the servant. The servant comes right on the heels of the king of Assyria, or both about the same time, because they're enemies of each other, like David and Goliath. And the David has to kill the Goliath in the end. It's like anciently happened. And he, the Lord comes to announce righteousness. And righteousness in Isaiah is a, is a metaphor or a pseudonym of the Lord's servant. Chapter 41, verse 2. We've covered that a number of times. Why are you clothed in red, your garments like those who tread grapes in the winepress? And you know, the winepress is a hollow, a bath in the earth, a flat bath dipped into the earth. This, this is the ground level, and this is what it's like. And then there is a deeper indent in the earth where all the juice goes. The grapes are thrown into this bath, which is about the size of these four of these tables. Then they dance to the music, treading the grapes with their feet. And all the juice goes into the little bath at the bottom. This is symbolic of the Lord atoning for our transgressions. He pays with his blood for our transgressions. And all the wrath of God that would normally come upon us comes upon him. He takes upon himself our covenant curses and the consequences of our transgressions. Alone, I have trodden out a vatful. He's all alone. There's no one with him when he does this. He's cut off even from God's presence at the very end when he's on the cross. Of the nations, no one was with me. Now this is also symbolic of those who are saviors to the house of Israel, that they're alone too, they're individuals, and they emulate Christ in the fact that they don't have much support from anybody, just from God. I trod them down in my anger, in my wrath I trampled them, showing again that the king of Assyria is part of the bloodbath of the end time. He destroys the wicked. So the Lord uses the king of Assyria as an instrument. The king of Assyria personifies God's anger and wrath. The Lord is not an angry God, but he uses the king of Assyria to bring upon the people the consequences of their transgressions. Their lifeblood spattered my garments, and I have stained my whole attire. So you see both the redemptive part of this, where he's taking upon himself our curses and suffering with the loss of his own blood, but those who don't repent, they incur the Lord's wrath, and their blood is shed, because there's no redemption for them if they don't repent. I've stained my whole attire, for I've resolved on a day of vengeance, and the year of my redeemed had come. The day of vengeance is the day of the Lord, the day of the world's judgment, but it's also the year of the Lord's redeemed people, the house of Israel, and those who minister to the house of Israel from among us, Latter-day Saints. So it's again that twofold thing. Each side of the coin then becomes apparent. Then from Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and descend. Like he did anciently at Sinai, he descended, and the heavens were rent, the mountains melting at your presence, as they did then. As when fire is lit for boiling water, which bubbles over from the heat, to make yourself known to your adversaries, the nations trembling at your presence. As when you performed awesome things, unexpected by us, your descent of old, when the mountains quake before you. Have you noticed the parallels here? Melting at your presence, trembling at your presence, and quaking at your presence, or before you. Same thing in Hebrew. So you have synonymous parallels there at the end of each of these first three verses. The mountains, the nations, and the mountains, in a little chiasm, showing that mountains is a metaphor for nations. So when it says mountains in the book of Isaiah, you know that 
It's referring to nations as well. It's a secondary meaning or a symbolic meaning. As when you performed awesome things unexpected by us, your descent of old and the mountains quake before you at Mount Sinai. Never has it been heard or perceived by the ear, nor has it in any eye seen a God besides you who acts thus on behalf of those who wait for him. And the key word there is to wait. To hope in him and to wait for him is the, the great test of the end time. Don't jump ship, don't, you know, don't jump the gun, don't do things on your own, seek his will, keep his commandments, even to the letter of the law, and then you'll be in his good graces, and then he will come to those who wait. Isaiah 66, see Jehovah comes with fire, his chariot is like a whirlwind, to retaliate in furious anger, to rebuke with conflagrations of fire. So we already know that fire, whirlwind, anger, and sword in the next verse, these are all pseudonyms of the king of Assyria. So he comes, first of all, the king of Assyria comes and does his thing, and then the Lord comes right on the heels of that. Because the king of Assyria is also the king of Babylon. Ancient Assyrian conquerors of Babylon were called or named themselves king of Babylon. So the king of Babylon is more like an idolatrous title, whereas king of Assyria is more like a military title of a world conqueror. And at the same time, at the very time that the king of Babylon is put down, the king of Zion arises. The same as the harlot Babylon descends into the dust at the very time that the woman Zion arises from the dust. Isaiah 2, men will go into caves and the rocks and holes in the ground from the awesome presence of Jehovah and from the brightness of his glory when he arises and strikes terror on earth. Well, that's the prelude, though. So far, we've just been discussing the prelude to his coming. 35, strengthen the hands growing feeble, steady the failing knees, say to those with fearful hearts, take courage, be unafraid. See, your God is coming to avenge and to reward, to avenge the wicked, to reward the righteous. God himself will come and deliver you in the form of Jehovah. But you see that there's, there is cause for fear in those days. They'll be the most terrible days ever in the world's history. People grow feeble and weak. They begin to doubt because everything is topsy-turvy and all their old paradigms are crashing to the ground and don't fit anymore. From the west, men will fear Jehovah omnipotent from the rising of the sun, his glory, for he will come upon them like a hostile torrent impelled by the spirit of the Lord. The torrent is again the king of Assyria. He's the new flood in the book of Isaiah that floods the earth with his armies, just like the ancient flood. His armies, it's an alliance of nations that he leads, they just swamp the whole earth. But he will come as a redeemer to Zion to those of Jacob who repent of transgression. And there you have Isaiah's definition of Zion or who Zion is. It's those of Israel or Jacob who repent of transgressions. It's those who repent, not everybody. Isaiah 40, the glory of Jehovah shall be revealed. That's his coming in glory, which has two preludes, his coming to Zion individually and also his coming to the old Jerusalem, to the new Jerusalem and the old Jerusalem. And finally he comes in glory to the entire earth. It shall be revealed in all flesh, see it at once. By his mouth Jehovah has spoken it. It's a decree and it will happen. And his mouth is a metaphor there's two mouths in the book of Isaiah, the king of Assyria, the Antichrist. He's mouthing off against God's people like Hitler did. But the Lord's mouth is also a metaphor or pseudonym for the Lord's end time servant who prepares the way before the coming of the Lord. And that day you will say, Isaiah 25, this is how God whom he expected would save us. This is Jehovah for whom he awaited. There's a key word, wait again. Let us joyfully celebrate his salvation. And believe me, that celebration will be like nothing else on earth at that time. When the Lord actually is there, you'll know it and you'll feel it. It'll be incredible. 
As a young man weds a virgin, so shall your sons wed you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Because here Isaiah likens him to a bridegroom, and he marries the woman Zion. And then, of course, you have the great marriage supper of the Lamb, to which the ten virgins were invited, but only five enter in. Okay, Jesus' second coming as the bridegroom. We'll pick up on that, on that theme. DNC 65. Hearken and low is a voice of one sent down from on high who is mighty and powerful. Now think about that because in the end time there are going to be many sent down from on high. Some to actually be born on the earth and to fulfill their end time missions, all of which help prepare us for the coming of the Lord. Now here's one who is mighty and powerful, whose going forth is unto the ends of the earth, yea, whose voice is unto men. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now in Isaiah 40, where this is taken from, in the New Testament it refers to John the Baptist. He's likened to a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But Isaiah is properly an end time scenario, not the time of John the Baptist, although that was kind of a figure or a foreshadowing. But there is a latter-day Enoch who prepares Zion, a latter-day John the Baptist, as we've mentioned, who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. He's the one that prepares the way and makes his path straight because the paths before that have all become crooked and they need to be straightened out. And what does the path mean? It means a straight course following the true points of doctrine into the Lord's presence and that has not been happening, well, not very much to speak of. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto men on the earth. Joseph Smith also was such a forerunner, such a one who's preparing the way of the Lord. The prophecies of Isaiah and the final end time scenario haven't started yet. It's still future. It all precedes the coming of the Lord when the world is conquered by the Assyrian alliance and the servant prepares the way for the Lord's coming among his covenant people and among the elect, among the 144,000 specifically. He's the angel from the east in Isaiah and in the book of Revelation. From thence shall the gospel roll forth to the ends of the earth as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hand shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. Now we've given a lot of lip service to the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, but really when you look at it in Daniel and other places, it is an end time thing. It begins to happen as it says in Isaiah 28. Also there's a stone mentioned which is that servant. He's a seer and so that is when things really get going. So the keys are here and so forth, but we haven't really established Zion and we don't establish Zion. It's established among the house of Israel, according to the Book of Mormon, not among us, but we help them to establish it. So, read the scriptures with new understandings, search them out and analyze them for what they say, not for what everybody has begun to believe, according to many precepts of men that are out there that, that just don't match with what the scriptures say. Until it has filled the whole earth, the voice crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord, prepare ye the supper of the Lamb, make ready for the bridegroom. And of course, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness in Isaiah. So there's a call out basically into the wilderness as also Ezekiel and other prophets talk about. It's a big theme in Isaiah. But here it's linked with the great supper of the Lamb that the ten virgins are invited to, which are us. Pray unto the Lord, call upon his holy name, make known his wonderful works among the people. Call upon the Lord that his kingdom may go forth upon the earth, that the inhabitants thereof may receive it and be prepared for the days to come in which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven. That's what it's all about. That's the scenario. Clothed in the brightness of his glory to meet the kingdom of God which is set up on the earth. That has by then been set up on the earth. 
Among whom? Well, among us helping the house of Israel set up. The full scenario involves the Jews, the ten tribes, Lehi descendants, who are all going to come into the gospel and make these olive trees blossom that are now bringing forth all kinds of bad fruit. So when they are grafted in, then, then the trees bear fruit. Not until then. We are the servants that are supposed to help them craft them in and bring this to pass. Then the kingdom of heaven can come down. It's not going to come down now. Obviously it's not. Have you seen it? I haven't. Wherefore may the kingdom of God go forth that the kingdom of heaven may come in, may come, that thou, O God, mayest be glorified in heaven, so on earth, that thine enemies may be subdued for thine honor, or thine is the honor, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we mentioned before, the glory of God is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, as it is in Isaiah, the consummation of all the earth, chapter 6, is his glory, to bring the whole plan to consummation and resolution, to glorify himself in the act of glorifying us or bringing us to glory, not only to salvation but to exaltation. DNC 133, hearken, O you people of my church, and that's us today specifically, so stay with the church, brethren and sisters, said the Lord your God, and hear the word of the Lord concerning you. The Lord who shall suddenly come to his temple, that is in the New Jerusalem and the Old Jerusalem, it's the millennial temple, and it's quoting who? Malachi. The Lord who shall come down upon the world with a curse to judgment, that's from Isaiah 34, that's Edom, the bloodbath of those who sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, and many are going to do that. They're already doing it. Upon all the nations that forget God, upon all the ungodly among you. For he shall make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of their God. That is from Isaiah 52. But the arm in the book of Isaiah is one of two arms, as I've mentioned many times. In this case, it's the servant. When the servant comes, that's the Lord. He's revealed. It's in Isaiah. The Lord reveals his righteousness, or the Lord makes reveals his arm. It's in 2 Nephi 28. God's people today who are of the covenant deny Christ at the time his arm is revealed. So many, many will apostatize when the Lord's servant is revealed. No one is expecting this person. He's hidden from the world, as is mentioned in Isaiah 49 that Nephi quotes. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of their God, because the word salvation is a pseudonym of Jehovah himself. It's called salvation in the book of Isaiah. He personifies salvation. So coming unto Christ is coming unto salvation, so to speak. Wherefore, prepare ye, prepare ye, O my people. My people is a covenant formula as opposed to this people or these people. It is an alienated people. Sanctify yourselves. It means become holy, not just saints, not just a name, but become holy every whit. Become clean of all your iniquities so you can do miracles, the Book of Mormon says. You know, this, this requires us to really take a good look at ourselves and say, well, I go to church, but that's not holiness. Everybody goes to church, or nearly everybody. Now, holiness is a, sanctity is a really specific way of life. It's beyond salvation, beyond being forgiven your sins. It's the perfection process. It's becoming clean and purified, upon which everything depends. The blessings that the Lord gave the brother Jared, and he had that great vision of the end from the beginning, and saw the Lord, is promised to us at Ether 4. When the Gentiles become clean before the Lord, exercise faith like the brother of Jared, and become sanctified, then they will see the things the brother of Jared saw. It's an open invitation to us. And who's doing it? There's more to sanctification than just being sanctimonious. Gather ye together, O ye people of my church, upon the land of Zion. And gathering together is what the Lord wants. He wants people to uplift each other and you know, to strengthen each other's testimonies and 
teach each other and be there for each other. There's gathering creates synergy and it's a beautiful thing. The Lord requires that of us. He's asking us right here. And that doesn't mean just the church. Who limited it to that? Why limited it to that? O oh, ye people of my church upon the land of Zion, all you that have not been commanded to tarry, go ye out from Babylon, be ye clean and bear the vessels of the Lord, call your solemn assemblies, speak often to one another. So there are also church functions that are important, but it doesn't say anywhere that's limited to them. Let every man call upon the name of the Lord, yea, verily I say upon I say unto you again, the time has come when the voice of the Lord is unto you, go ye out of Babylon, gather ye out from among the nations. First of all, a spiritual a mindset, right? It's a spiritual process. You go out of Babylon by choosing higher laws to keep, keeping higher commandments, giving up lesser laws, like watching TV or going to sports events, even if they're church sports, who cares? I mean, these are big diversions from sanctity. And why bother with those? How can you entertain those things? Do you expect to entertain the Lord? Do you expect to see him at the game or something? You know, I'm just saying, I don't think the Lord would have time to be there. So would you? So are you going to emulate him or not? You know what I'm saying? So that's what sanctification and going out of Babylon is about. Babylon is the things of the world and everything, all the trappings of Babylon. Send forth the elders of my church unto the nations far up. You know, in the time of Joseph Smith, that was a big deal. They left home left the comforts of home and went without purse or script to nations afar off, to the islands of the sea, send forth unto foreign lands, call upon all nations. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the fruits will be when you serve the Lord. And if there's not much sacrifice involved, how can you have fruits? Because it's a principle, it's a divine principle that the greater the sacrifice, like the sons of Messiah, look at the sacrifice they made. Fourteen years going on a mission, of course they had those results. They had to have. Call upon all nations, first upon the Gentiles and then upon the Jews. But the time of the Gentiles is now, still. But the time will come and it turns to the Jews when? When the Gentiles reject the fullness of the gospel after having received it. 3 Nephi 16, 3 Nephi 20, 3 Nephi 20. It's as plain as day. And behold and lo, this shall be their cry. And the voice of the Lord unto all people, go ye forth unto the land of Zion. This is the great exodus. The physical exodus that happens some point, that the borders of my people may be enlarged, and that her stakes may be strengthened, and that Zion may go forth unto the regions round about. Because eventually Zion has to cover the entire earth. The whole earth will become a Zion people and a Zion place. Yea, let the cry go forth among all people, awake and arise. You know, all the ten virgins were asleep, right? Including the righteous ones. Awake and arise, and go forth to meet the bridegroom. Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him, Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is this, is this spoken of throughout the Old Testament by the Hebrew prophets. It is that time of judgment that comes upon the earth in the last days, in the end time, I should say, that precedes the coming of the Lord. And it's a, it's a thing to prepare for because it's so amazingly great, both on the one hand for evil to the wicked and for good to the righteous. And very few people will be sufficiently prepared according to what the scriptures say. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour. So in other words, be prepared ahead of time. And let them therefore who are among the Gentiles flee unto Zion, and let them who, who are of Judah flee unto Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, unto the mountains of the Lord's house. I think that's interesting. The mountains of the Lord's house could apply either to Zion or to Jerusalem, because 
this seems to allude to the call-out that happens before the great destructions come and people go into the wilderness, not only here but also over in Israel, like the ancient Sinai wilderness wandering, where they may go back in their call-out. Go ye out from among the nations, even from Babylon. This is the literal physical now, after the spiritual. You have to be prepared in your mind to do it. Lot's wife was not prepared. From the midst of wickedness, which is spiritual Babylon, Verily thus said the Lord, Let not your flight be in haste, but let all things be prepared before, before you. And he that goeth, let him not look back, lest sudden destruction come upon him. This is a literal physical out, getting out. First of all, spiritual and then physical. If you haven't been keeping higher laws and you're still being entrenched and immersed in Babylon, you're not going to go. You're not going to leave. You'll be like Lot's wife. Hearken and hear, O ye inhabitants of the earth. Listen, ye elders of my church, together and hear the voice of the Lord. For he calleth upon all men, and he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. No one is excluded. And if you're not in a repentant mode all day long and all night long, then get used to it because that's the only way you'll ever be qualified. You'll ever qualify for, for the blessings that he's holding. It's, it's repentance. Is, this is the time to repent. Mortality is, but it's an all-day, all-night thing. It's the first principle of the gospel in a way. For behold, the Lord God hath sent forth the angel crying through the midst of heaven, saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, for the hour of his coming is nigh. When the Lamb shall stand upon Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. That is us. That 144,000 have to come out of our church. President Kimball made that clear. We're the ones who help redeem, redeem the ten, 10 lost tribes, still in the lost and fallen state. It's not them. Not from them, not from the Jews, not from Lehi's descendants by and large. We are those spiritual kings and queens to bring them up to that elect level, to the church of the firstborn, so we can bring them out physically after we've brought them to that point spiritually. Having his father's name written on their foreheads, as I mentioned, these are like the three Nephites who inherit the Father's kingdom, as distinct from the nine Nephites who inherit the Lord's kingdom in third Nephi. Wherefore, prepare ye for the coming of the bridegroom, go ye out to meet him. For behold, he shall stand upon the Mount of Olivet, Mount of Olives, and upon the mighty ocean, even that great deep, and upon the islands of the sea, and upon the land of Zion. So, Zechariah mentions his coming to the Mount of Olives. I was recently seen a vision by a Jewish kid, Natan, in the rabbinic school. Now, he saw the Lord coming. And he saw a lot of things. He mentions in his YouTube video in the yeshivas, in the rabbinic school's YouTube video. So the whole earth is going to be touched by his coming. It's going to be affected by his coming. He shall utter his voice out of Zion. He shall speak from Jerusalem, both places. These are the two great centers of the millennium. And his voice shall be heard among all people, everyone, no one's excluded. There shall be a voice as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder, which shall break down the mountains. The valley shall not be found. He shall command the great deep and shall be driven back into the north countries and the islands shall become one land. And the land of Jerusalem and the land of Zion shall be turned back into their own place and the earth shall be like as it was in the days before it was divided. And the Lord, even the Savior, shall stand in the midst of his people and shall reign over all flesh in the millennial age. Now this ominous coming of the Lord, as we see later in Spencer's vision, in visions of glory, is how the wicked perceive his coming, but the righteous perceive his coming somewhat differently, as also other scriptures attest. Because his coming is the destruction of the wicked, heralds the destruction of the wicked, and the deliverance of the righteous. And they who are in north countries will come in remembrance before the Lord, the ten lost tribes, that is, and their prophets shall hear his voice, or they have prophets, they have their own prophets. 
and shall no longer stay themselves as they have been, not using their power, not using the powers that God has given them, because it wasn't the time. But when they come in that exodus, that's the time. That's called the day of power in the scriptures. And they shall smite the rocks, and the eye shall flow down as their presence. So in other words, they have the power like Moses to do that. And the highway shall be cast up in the midst of the great deep. They'll come right through the sea. It's been seen in vision by many latter-day visionaries, even, like anciently with Moses, but much on a much larger scale than ever before. Their enemies shall become a prey to them, whereas before that it was the other way around. They were a prey to their enemies. And in the barren deserts there shall come forth pools of living water, because it's the great reversal of circumstances for God's people. And the deserts become paradise, and what's now paradise, or Babylon, will become desert. And the parched ground shall no longer be a thirsty land. It's symbolic of the Lord's people kind of regenerating, so the land regenerates and the earth regenerates. And they shall bring forth their rich treasures to the children of Ephraim, my servants. Now note there that his servants, and you see that 144,000 servants, the servants in the allegory of Zenos, where the one servant gets other servants, that's the end time servant, who gets other servants, 144,000, to graft in the natural branches. The servants in the book of Isaiah who appear after the one servant appears, these servants are all the same people. And they are the children of Ephraim. So they're the ones who have to perform their saving mission through the other tribes of Israel. And that is why the greater blessing is on the head of Ephraim, because it's his birthright to do as Joseph did in Egypt, to save his brethren in the time of spiritual famine. And the boundaries of the everlasting hills shall tremble at their presence, and they're led by translated beings who have power of the elements. There they shall fall down and be crowned with glory, because there are the elect of God who are gathered. So of course they're going to be crowned and exalted, even in Zion by the hands of the servants of the Lord, the children of Ephraim. And they shall be filled with songs of everlasting joy on their return to Zion, or the stakes of Zion. Behold, this is the blessing of the everlasting God upon the tribes of Israel, and the richer blessing upon the head of Ephraim and his fellows, only, but, only if Ephraim does that job, if he does his job. Upon those of Ephraim who don't do it, they will receive no richer blessing. How can they? And they also, the tribe of Judah, after their pain, shall be sanctified and holiest before the Lord. What's that about? The Jews have been made the world's scapegoats for centuries now for killing Christ and all whatever other accusations they can throw at them. And they have suffered horrendously. Now, you have to consider that everything that happens in this life, you know, it was the ancestors who rejected Jesus, not the current Jews. So why, why are they suffering so much? Well, because they agreed to do it before the foundation of the world, because the whole trial of the Lord's plan is based on free agency, right? So they must have agreed to it before they came. You can't say, why me? Or why am I a victim? Da, da, da. It doesn't work that way. But their pain shall be sanctified and holiness before the Lord. Remember that principle that I mentioned to you last time that Karen Preer teaches? That is, when a person has been violated by enemies, whoever they are, abuse or sexual, you know, violations, or whatever it may be, persecutions, robberies, you name it. When they, in holiness, when they offer that suffering, those afflictions, and those horrible things that happen to them as a free will offering to God, as a free will offering, now you would say, okay, if this happened to me, let it happen, I'll offer it as a free will because I'm going to help redeem the earth from the fall. When enough of us, you know, have that attitude and become sanctified through that offering, then the earth can change to a paradisical glory, not before. How will it? Because enough of us have to be vibrating on a higher frequency, then it can change. So they also, the tribe of Judah, after their pain, well, anybody's pain, not just Judah, because God is the same yesterday, ten forever, and has no respect to persons, shall be sanctified in holiness before the Lord. So if you have some big pain in your history, offer it up as a free will offering. See what happens.
you'll be changed, transformed. To dwell in His presence day and night, forever and ever. So they dwell in the presence of God because they, above all people on the earth, were willing to be the world's scapegoats in emulation of Jesus Himself, who was the world's scapegoat, who took upon Himself all of our transgressions. Yes, there are covenant curses. Yes, there are generational dysfunctions that have their consequences. All of that's true. That's not the only part of the story. You make it a free will offering, it all changes. And they will be that transitional generation that goes from a dysfunctional state to a sanctified state, like the pioneers who came west, who gave up everything, who made horrendous sacrifices in one generation. In those great acts of consecration, they were changed. They became sanctified. It's an eternal principle. That's, that's why they dwell in His presence day and night. Day and night, because they're translated or they're resurrected. And now verily says the Lord that these things might be known among you, I haven't said the earth, might be known among us. Hey, why shouldn't we know them? If you don't know them, let's learn them. Oh, I haven't said the earth, I have sent forth mine angel flying through the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, who has appeared unto some and hath committed them to man, who shall appear unto many that dwell on the earth, and this gospel shall be preached unto every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Well, I would say Joseph Smith would be one who qualified for that, but also his servant who comes to prepare the way before his coming, right before his coming. And the servants of God, that is, the children of Ephraim, right? The sons of Ephraim, shall go forth saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, not your idols, and the sea and the fountains of waters, calling upon the name of the Lord day and night, saying, O that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, this is from Isaiah 64, which we read a moment ago. So much of the DNC is from Isaiah, but it's put in different contexts and different combinations of scriptures, which kind of helps fill out a bigger picture. Oh, that which come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, and shall be answered upon their heads, for the presence of the Lord shall be as a melting fire that burneth. That's the king of Assyria. But also himself, when he comes in glory, they also perish before him, if there are any left of the wicked. And as the fire which causes the waters to boil, O Lord, thou shalt come down to make thy name known to thy adversaries, and all the nations shall tremble at thy presence when thou doest terrible things, things they look not for. Well, that's a little different translation than the one I have from Isaiah. Both are good enough. Yea, when thou comest down, and the mountains flow down at thy presence, thou shalt meet him who rejoices and worketh righteousness, who remembereth thee in thy ways. Now, this is how, remember how we talked about last time how the people at the foot of the mountain experience God as his larger-than-life reality. Remember that? With all the quakings and lightnings and thunders and the mountain and fire and all that. And that was their experience of Jehovah. But the experience of the 70 elders of Moses was quite different. They ate bread in his presence. And they saw that he had a pavement under his feet that was out of this world. So when you read this, you know, you see that on the one hand, yeah, the nations and the mountains are going to melt and so forth. But at the same time, it's great for the righteous who are there, like Moses and the elders, who are a type and shadow of God's elect of the end time. For since the beginning of the world have not men heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor has any God seen besides thee, how great things thou hast prepared for him that waiteth for thee. And shall be said, Who is this that cometh down from God in heaven? with dyed garments. We read that from Isaiah 63. So it's quoting another part of Isaiah now. Yea, from the regions which are not known, clothed in his glorious apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, they shall say, Is I who spake in righteousness, who declares righteousness in Isaiah, mighty to save, and the Lord shall be red in his apparel, his garments like him 
that treadeth in the wine vat. And so great shall be the glory of his presence that the sun shall hide his face in shame and the moon shall withhold its light and the stars shall be hurled from their places. Well, you know, you look up at the stars now and you see these, like uh, it says in the book of Enoch, to the wandering stars it was reserved the judgment forever. What are the wandering stars we see up there now? They're satellites, right? So the stars shall be hurled from their places. Well, it depends which star you're talking about. Likely not other stars in our galaxy, but certainly moving objects that you see up there that look like stars. They'll be coming down as perhaps, you know, nuclear device. And his voice shall be heard. This is just speculation, my brides, and don't take me seriously. And his voice shall be heard. I've trodden the winepress alone, and I've brought judgment upon all people, but the judgment will be intense. And none were with me, and I've trampled them in my fury. I did tread upon them in my anger, the king of Assyria, and their blood I sprinkled upon my garments, and stained all of my raiment. For this was the day of vengeance which was in my heart. But remember, the day of vengeance is also the year of the redeemed of God, right? So it's a twofold thing. This is how the wicked are going to experience it, the day of vengeance, not the righteous. And now the year of my redeemed had come, and they shall mention the loving kindness of their Lord, and all that he has bestowed upon them according to his goodness, and according to all his loving kindness forever and ever. That's also from Isaiah. Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. And it's all end time. Have you noticed? Isaiah's is an end time scenario. It's not the time of Joseph Smith. Not the time any time before, except, except that his history that he chooses selectively to talk about is an allegory of the end time. But when Jesus, Nephi, and Jacob quote Isaiah, it's all end time. In all their afflictions he was afflicted, the angel of his presence delivering them or saving them. That angel of his presence is the end time angel. Like Moses, he delivered them anciently, so does the servant. And in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and bore them, carried them all the days of old, he sustained them. He and Enoch also, and they who were with him, the prophets who were before him, and Noah also, and they who were before him, and Moses also, and they who were before him, and from Moses to Elijah, and from Elijah to John, who were with Christ in his resurrection, and the holy apostles with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, shall be in the presence of the Lamb. Where? Well, likely at Adam and the Almond, right, for one thing. And the graves of the saints shall be opened, and they shall come forth and stand on the right hand of the Lamb, when he shall stand upon Mount Zion, and upon the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and they shall sing the song of the Lamb day and night forever and ever. There's a special song that they sing. We learn about that in Spencer's vision at the end, which is beautiful. It's just peculiar to them, that song. So that's what it says also of the 144,000, of course. Jesus' prediction on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24, I chose Joseph Smith, Matthew 24. It's a little different. It's a little repetitious too, but it's okay. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things shall be, which thou hast said concerning the destruction of the temple, and the Jews. So that's referring to his day. But remember that everything that happened in history, scriptural history, is a foreshadowing of what happens in the end time when things repeat themselves. The entire Book of Mormon is that way, and Isaiah is certainly that way all the way through. And what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, or the destruction of the wicked? So there's a definition of the end of the world that Joseph Smith also teaches, which is the destruction of the wicked. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed. The end of the world, by the way, is the end of the celestial world. The end of the all celestial people have to go somewhere else. And the ushering in of the terrestrial or paradisical glory in the millennial age. And Jesus said unto them, Take he that no man deceive you. Why would he mention that first? Because there will be so much deception. It will be so sophisticated, that deception will be so sophisticated that you'll hardly tell unless you're the elect of God. Unless you've made sure you're calling election, you'll still be deceived in some way or other. That's what it says in DNC 76 that people of the terrestrial order 
are those who are still deceived by the craftiness of men, but not the elect, because they've waded through all of the deceptions and figured them all out. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. Who? Well, the authorities. Well, which authorities? The political and ecclesiastical, of course. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another. To who? To the authorities, to the ecclesiastical and political authorities. And they shall hate one another. It'll be like the time of Joseph Smith and Christ. There was collusion between the political and ecclesiastical establishment of their day. And then shall many be offended, shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. You know, even to show your loyalty to the authorities, if you betray somebody like in communism, then they know that you really are loyal to the authorities, right? Yeah, it'll be like that. Many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many coming in like wolves in sheep's clothing. And because iniquity shall abound, iniquity being those dysfunctional patterns as distinct from sins, of which you can be forgiven and repent. But iniquity is generational from the third and fourth generation, as Moses says. The love of many shall wax cold, because these things start and happen when the iniquity of the world is full. Because iniquity shall abound. When iniquity is full, people have no chance at recovering from it, if left alone. The Lord has to intervene. So the love of many or charity shall wax cold. Those who had love will no longer have it anymore. Take away the spirit and there's nothing. But he that remains steadfast or endures to the end and is not overcome, the same shall be saved and exalted if you're elect. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, then shall you stand in the holy place or holy places as other miscriptures mention, whoso readeth, let him understand. So there's a mystery to figure out here, and I'll let you figure it out. Then let them who are in Judea, that's in, you know, the land of Palestine today, flee into the mountains. So they go into the mountains too, as they did after the Romans, after Jesus was slain, there was great persecution, and they fled into the mountains. So when the Romans came, they didn't touch the disciples of Jesus. They're gone. Let him who's on the house stop flee and not return to take anything out of his house. No way around when... You get that call, either directly through the Spirit or through your leaders. Neither let him who is in the field return back to take his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child, unto them that give suck in those days. was extra difficult. And for pray ye the Lord that your flight be not in the winter, because it's a flight. You have to go quickly, neither on the Sabbath day, so that you might pollute the Sabbath day or defile the Sabbath. Of course, people think nothing today of traveling on the Sabbath anywhere. They do their trips on the weekends, on the Sabbath. Think nothing of it. But what does Jesus say here? Isn't the Sabbath the day of rest? For then, in those days shall be great tribulation on the Jews and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, such as was not before sent upon Israel. But those who go into the mountains will flee the destruction. But the term Jews is a specific category also, as mentioned in the New Testament. It always seems to refer to the unbelieving of the Jews, or for the most part, anyway, of God. And Natan, this is what Natan sees. He sees, he sees those great tragedies. He sees many religious Jews slain by the Arabs and so forth at that time in Jerusalem. And not everyone who says, he says, who has a beard and a kippah on his head escapes that destruction. Since the beginning of their kingdom until this time, no nor ever shall be again. The worst time for the Jews ever, and for any of the elect, actually. They're going to get it from all sides, as we mentioned. The cunning of the devil, Jesus mentioned, the third Nephi 21, puts you between a rock and a hard place, as I explained to you. All things which have befallen them are only the beginning of the sorrows which shall come upon them. That's the Holocaust, that's the Inquisition, 
the horrible tortures and all those things that were happened then. But except those days should be shortened, there should none of their flesh be saved. So you can imagine that out of 14 million Jews in the world today, there may not be very many left. But for the elect's sake, according to the covenant, those days shall be shortened. And who are the elect? Well, hopefully some of us. Because we have to be their saviors. And if we don't do our job, it won't happen for them either. But the elect are proxy saviors. That's what the mission of the 144,000 is. And if we don't fulfill that mission of being saviors to the house of Israel, we'll be a salt as lost as savior, DNC. The elect according to the covenant. Which covenant? The covenants that they make with God according to the Davidic covenant, the covenant of a proxy savior. So we have to become familiar with these covenants and not think we know it all just because we've done temple covenants. We have to become familiar with these Old Testament covenants that Isaiah teaches. He had the fullness of the gospel. He spoke about all things concerning my people which are of the house of Israel, including the fullness of the gospel in the Hebrew context. He preempted the New Testament and its gospel, in fact. Behold, these things I have spoken unto you concerning the Jews, and again, after the tribulation of those days which shall come upon Jerusalem, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there believe him not. Just remember that because many are falling prey to false Christs right now. As we've seen, people leading people astray very, very carefully. When those days there shall also rise false Christs and false prophets shall great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect, who are the elect according to the covenant. So it's not possible to deceive the elect, otherwise they would not be the elect, as it says here, if, if it were possible. Behold, I speak these things unto you for the elect's sake, because they will be the ones that are savvy to all that's going on. They're, ones below that will be deceived. And you also should hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you be not troubled. And the elect are never troubled, because they know what the Lord is doing. And you also shall hear of wars, for all that I have told you must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert going up. How many times does he have to warn us about this? Go not forth, behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even to the west, and covereth the whole earth, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. As we'll see later in Spencer's vision, he spells it out. And now I show unto you a parable. Behold, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. What does that mean? It tells you. So likewise shall my elect be gathered from the four quarters of the earth. So they are the eagles, because they are translated beings. It's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, where they shall ascend as an eagle's wings, and they shall run without wings, and walk and not faint, because they never get tired. They have power over the elements. They're changed. Their bodies don't grow tired. And they shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. Behold, I speak for mine elect's sake. He's always addressing the elect, right? Because no one else is going to get it, really. They may think they do. And the lower down the ladder, the spiritual ladder they are, the more they think they really do know. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. And again, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. He said that, but he's saying it again. But he, shall not be, he that shall not be overcome, the same shall be saved. And again, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. By whom? By the 144,000. Because it hasn't happened yet. We're not yet in all countries, but we will be then. For a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. That's the final witness that the world gets when the hunters go out, not just the fishers like we have now, fishing for, for converts. And Jeremiah says, when they come home, the hunters go out. They are the ones who hunt the house of Israel down 
So they bring everyone to Zion. And then shall the end come or the destruction of the wicked. And again shall the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet be fulfilled. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, the moon will not give her light, and the stars fall from heaven. The very powers of heaven will be shaken. It's a time when the whole world is in commotion. So how can you prepare for all that? Only by living righteously, by becoming purified before the Lord and sanctified. That is your very best preparation. And it's an independent thing. It's, Isaiah talks about individuals. Only individuals do it, not everybody, not the collective. Eventually, those individuals become a collective, the people of Zion, but not in the interim. And they go through horrible persecutions for that, through their descent phases before they ascend to the next spiritual level. Really, I say unto you, this generation in which these things shall be shown forth shall not pass away. All I have told you shall be fulfilled. Although the days will come that heaven and earth shall pass away, because at the inception of the millennium there will be a new earth and new heavens, as Isaiah teaches, and also at the end of the millennial age will be a new world and a new heavens. Yet my words will not pass away, but all will be fulfilled. As I said before, after the tribulation of those days, the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And who is the Son of Man? I mean, who is the man in the Son of Man title? The Father, was Jesus would not belittle his father by claiming his humanity before his divinity. So that man is the Most High God, the Father. Son of the Most High God is Christ. And whose treasures of my word shall not be deceived, for the Son of Man shall come, he shall send his angel before him. Who are they? Well, the 144,000, because all translated beings, like the three Nephites, are like the angels of God. It says that of the three Nephites, right? And they were translated. And they are the, elect, the angels who gather his elect from the four winds. With, with the great sound of a trumpet, they shall gather together the remainder of his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Well, from the four parts of the earth, according to other scriptures, but also from heaven. So maybe there are elect out there, somewhere, that we've lost from the earth. Only because it says, from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when its branches yet tender, and begins to put forth the leaves. This is, you know, the fig tree is so symbolic of the Jews. Remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree in the New Testament? That was his, symbolic of his cursing the Jews, or that the Jews really brought upon themselves their curse by not believing in him. And that was just an outward symbolism of it. You know that summer is nigh, so likewise mine elect, when they shall see all these things, now referring to his elect, when they shall see all these things, shall know that it is near even at the doors. So notice that he's, he's talking about his elect who see these things, meaning there are others who just don't see it. They don't see it. And that's part of the test for the elect, because they can be horribly persecuted by those who don't see it. And they'll say, oh, you're fringy, you got it wrong, and you are way out in left field, or you da-da-da, whatever. And there'll be horrible persecution and betrayals like Jesus predicts. But mine elect, when they shall see these things, shall know that he is near, even at the doors. But of that day and hour, no one knoweth, no, not the angel of God in heaven, but my Father only. For as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also the coming of the Son of Man, which shall be with them as it was in the days which were before the flood. What was going on before the flood? Every man was doing crazy stuff, right? The earth was full of violence. Is it full of violence now? It's getting there. All the abortions and murders and suicides and violations of the innocent, violation of women. Have you noticed who the leaders are in this whole 
debacle, almost like a satanic cult is taking over. So the earth, the Lord had to make an end of it. And so he's going to again. For until that day that Noah entered the ark, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It's a new flood. It's mentioned in Isaiah. But the flood in Isaiah is the king of Assyria's worldwide conquest by military force. It's a flood of fire and the sword. Not to say that there's not going to be actual water floods. Of course, it's also predicted. And took them all away, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall be fulfilled that which is written, that in the last days two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. Two shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, the other left. You know, it's like Isaiah says in chapter 57, verse 1, that the righteous is taken away and that the wicked don't even notice that they're gone. They're taken away before the destructions come, like Lot being taken out of Sodom by the angels who, who gathered him out on the very eve of destruction. And what I say unto one, I say unto all men, watch therefore, for you know not at what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, if the good man of the house had known what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up, but would have been ready. Who is the great thief at the Lord's coming? The Lord's coming will be like a thief in the night. It's the king of Assyria who conquers the world, who steals all the wealth of the world as Isaiah teaches, and as we have discussed previously. Therefore be you also ready for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. He cometh in the form of the king of Assyria. The Lord is not a thief. Of course he's not. But the king of Assyria is a thief. So the Lord's coming is this twofold thing. Destruction at the hands of the king of Assyria and also the Lord's glory is coming to the, to the righteous. To the righteous by the Lord's definition, as I keep mentioning. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, so here's a good definition, of whom his Lord hath made ruler over his house, that's the end time servant, to give them food or meat, King James translation, food, I think lechem is bread, in due season, blessed is he, or blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of course, not just one person, but all the 144,000 will be doing this but they are led by that one, the angel from the east. Verily I say unto you, he shall make him ruler over all his goods, because all of these 144,000 reign with Christ during the millennial age, but he in a particular sense. But if that evil servant, so there is another one, we see that in Isaiah 20, 22? Yeah, Eliakim replaces Shemna, the evil servant. That evil, and you have the same thing with um, David replacing Saul. There are great types and shadows there. But if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord, delay is coming, shall begin to smite his fellow servants, to eat and drink with the drunken, and drunken is a metaphor, you know, it's a, a word linked to Ephraim, Ephraim and Egyptians both, which is what we are, a code name for America in Isaiah, the great superpower of Isaiah's day in decline, it's Egypt, and there are word links connecting drunkenness to both Egypt and Ephraim, chapter 28 of Isaiah, smiting his fellow servants because because he's into the drunken state that Isaiah says the prophets of God will be in at that time. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and the hour he's not aware of, he hasn't taken warning, and shall cut him asunder, and shall point him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But of course that servant is also a type of all the other servants are doing the same thing, right? Smiting their fellow servants. So. There's going to be great weeping and gnashing of teeth someday because of that. And those who thought they were the very elect of God find themselves in that, in that place. Have you noticed that Isaiah is really the key to so many scriptures? And if you don't know Isaiah, you'll not realize what these other scriptures are talking about. With all of the word links 
and the keywords and code names that are in Isaiah that are just permeating these scriptures. And if you don't have a clue about Isaiah, it takes about two years, as you know, that those of you who've done it, to internalize all the concepts that Isaiah has. So it's a beautiful thing. It really equips you to understand all other scriptures. The NC45, more along the lines of what we did before. I will show it plainly as I showed it unto my disciples, as I stood before them in the flesh, and spake unto them, saying, As ye have asked of me concerning the signs of my coming, in the day when I shall come in my glory in the clouds of heaven, to fulfill the promises that I have made unto your fathers. For as ye have looked upon the long absence of your spirits from your bodies to be a bondage. So, you know, when you die, there's a period of interval before you're resurrected, and those who are in that state want their bodies back, of course, so they can experience all the joys of having a body. And so they look upon it as a bondage until they're resurrected. And I will show unto you how the day of redemption shall come and also the restoration of scattered Israel because that is what it's all about. By definition, the Book of Mormon, that is the great and marvelous work, the restoration of the house of Israel, which we entirely misinterpreted when you look at it in context and analyze what it says. The restoration of the house of Israel is the great restitution of all things. It hasn't happened yet. It's still future spoken of in the Doctrine and Covenants as well. And now ye behold this temple, which is in Jerusalem, which ye call the house of God, and your enemies say this house shall never fall. So it's the same thing in our church and among ourselves. When we say this and that and the other, it's always just going to get better and so forth. That's not what the scriptures are saying. We need to really examine ourselves that we don't make this kind of mistake. But verily I say unto you that desolations will come upon this generation as a thief in the night. That is the king of Assyria doing his thing in Isaiah and other scriptures. And this people shall be destroyed and scattered among all nations. So what happened in the past through the Romans will happen again in the end time among them and upon, among us because we are also part of the, the Lord's covenant people today. We're not called the house of Israel anywhere in the scriptures. We're called Gentiles or saints as I mentioned before. Look, look it up for yourselves. And this temple which ye now see shall be thrown down that there shall not be left one stone upon another. And they shall, you know, after those labors of all those people and what that house represented, the Lord had no respect to it because it was the temple of these people and these people had apostatized. It shall come to pass that this generation of Jews shall not pass away until every desolation which I have told you concerning them shall come to pass. You say that you know that the end of the world cometh. You also say you know the heavens and the earth shall pass away. And in this ye shall say truly, for so it is. But these things which I have told you shall not pass away until all shall be fulfilled. And this I have told you concerning Jerusalem. And when that day shall come, shall a remnant be scattered among all nations, that is, of the Jews, of the entire house of Israel. And they shall be gathered again, but they shall remain until the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled, or are fulfilled. And the times of the Gentiles are us today. When Ephraim has been gathering out from among the Gentiles, Ephraim who was assimilated into the Gentiles and was as Joseph Smith said, identified with the Gentiles. And so we're given a period of time in which to get the acts together, and when we don't, when that time is over, we, we deny Christ, as said in 2 Nephi 28, the majority of us end up denying Christ, it turns back to the Jews and the Ten Tribes. It has the reverse, the reverse of what happened when the Jews rejected Jesus. And that day shall be heard of wars and rumors of wars, and the whole earth shall be in commotion, and men's hearts shall fail them. And they shall say that Christ delays his coming to the end of the earth. Like that evil servant says it. The Lord is delaying his coming. And the love of men shall wax cold. We've covered that several times already in these scriptures. And iniquity shall abound, or the iniquity of the people will befall, because that's when the Lord brings on any judgment on the earth. He did it among the Nephites, among the Jaredites, and others. 
And when the times of the Gentiles has come in, has come in, when it's completed, a light shall break forth among them that sit in darkness and shall be the fullness of my gospel. In the book of Isaiah, that light is the servant. The two lights, the Lord the greater light and the servant the lesser light, and he personifies God's light in Isaiah 42 and 49. It's a metaphor, and the king of Assyria at the same time personifies darkness in the book of Isaiah. He's appointed as a light and shall be the fullness of my gospel because the fullness of the gospel at that time will be so distorted and so many precepts of men passing off as scripture or passing off as gospel that the true points of his doctrine again need to be redefined. But they receive it not, for they perceive not the light, but they turn their hearts from me because of the precepts of men. Second Nephi 28. Read it. How we progressively buy into these precepts of men that have no scriptural basis. And in that generation shall the times of the Gentile be fulfilled because that's where it says we, those in Zion end up denying Christ. That's us. It will be cut off among his people who are of the covenant, as Jesus says. And there shall be men standing in that generation that shall not pass until they shall see an overflowing scourge, for the desolating sickness shall cover the land. That scourge in the book of Isaiah is another pseudonym for the king of Assyria. In chapter 28 of Isaiah addressed to Ephraim, which also talks about this flood, the flood coming, the sickness, uh, the scourge, an overflowing scourge. And that is because we've taken lightly the scriptures, the Book of Mormon especially, including its Isaiah passages. Because of that, we're under condemnation. And if we don't get our acts together, the scourge will overcome us. It's a warning there where it says that, but the scriptures actually say that the scourge does come. And we see that in Spencer's book, Vision of Glory, where the, both the uh, desolating sickness and the floods come right here in Happy Valley, well here, yeah, in both these valleys. But my disciples, that's the one, you know, his disciples, not the ones who think they are disciples, shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved, shall not be moved by all these events. First of all, because they're prepared, and secondly, because they go into these holy places where these calamities entirely escape them. Because as we mentioned before in Isaiah, they're protected by the cloud of glory, as Israelites were anciently when they dwelt in the Sinai wilderness. But among the wicked, men shall lift up their voices and curse God and die. And there shall be earthquakes and also in diverse places and many desolations. Yet men will harden their hearts against me. They will take up the sword one against another. They will kill one another. Because people in that unrepentant state always want to blame somebody else and never see that they are the ones maybe that have a problem. So they want to get revenge on somebody and pass off their guilt on them. And now when I, the Lord, had spoken these words to my disciples, they were troubled. And I said unto them, Be not troubled. When all these things shall come to pass, you may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. So again, the redemption of the righteous or the elect and the destruction of the wicked. Two-sided. And when the light shall begin to bring forth, it shall be with them like unto a parable which I will show you. You look and behold the fig trees and you see them with your eyes. And you say when they begin to shoot forth and their leaves are yet tender, that summer is nigh. Even so shall be in that day. These scriptures kind of repeat themselves a little bit in Doctrine and Covenants, which is okay. And when you shall see all these things, then shall they know that the hour is nigh, and shall come to pass that he that feareth me shall be looking forth for the great day of the Lord to come. Before that it said the elect, right? And so here you have a different variation, meaning those who fear the Lord, who don't fear men, don't fear anybody, just God. The great of the Lord to come, independent above every creature below the celestial kingdom, even for the signs of the coming of the Son of Man, and they shall see signs and wonders, well, they shall be shown forth in the heavens above. Well, we already had a whole slew of these signs and wonders. Have you noticed? In these configurations of the stars and 
the blood moons and things like that. Has anybody taken any notice? I'm sure most of you have here. And the amazing coordination with ancient events, with Christ's death and with his birth. And, and so it is, will be in the end time again. For they shall be shown forth in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. Well, we've already seen many of those too, with much wildlife passing away and those horrible sounds that are making noises all throughout the earth and things like of that kind. And they shall behold blood and fire and vapors of smoke. And before the day of the Lord shall come, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon be turned to blood, and the stars fall from heaven. By all the pollutions that were going to happen. And the remnant shall be gathered unto this place, that is, speaking at Jerusalem, the remnant of the Jews at least, but there's two remnants, right? Ephraim and the ten tribes in this country, and the Jews in the old country, in Palestine. And then they shall look upon me, and behold, I will come, and they shall see me in the clouds of heaven, clothed with power and great glory, with all the holy angels, he that watches not for me shall be cut off. So keeping watch and being prepared are the two big kind of watchwords here. Because if you're not, you're going to be cut off. Cut off is the term that we've talked about many times before. Cut off from what? From the people of the covenant, of course. Look it up under all its instances, that term, cut off. Romans 11, cut off from the olive tree, cut off from, yeah, the Lord's covenant people. But before the arm of the Lord shall fall, that's the servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah, two arms of God, the arm of righteousness and the arm of salvation, the Lord and his servant, shall fall, that's in judgment, the angels shall sound his trump, and the saints that have slept shall come forth to meet me in the cloud. The saints, the sanctified ones, right? The saints who are literally saints by God's definition, not by name. Wherefore, if you have slept in peace, blessed are you. Which means that the others who don't sleep in peace, right? Their souls are harrowed up by the consciousness of their guilt. Blessed are you, for as you now behold me and know that I am, and that's a definition of knowing the Lord, not just knowing about him. And he says to the foolish virgins, I don't know you. It means a personal knowledge, not just knowledge about him. Even so shall ye come unto me and know your souls, and your soul shall live, and your redemption shall be perfected. Because redemption goes on and on and on from one phase to the next. And the saints shall come forth from the four quarters of the earth, then shall the arm of the Lord fall upon the nations. Well, the elect come from the four quarters of the earth in a great gathering as Isaiah and the other prophets and many other scriptures. Talk about. And then shall the Lord set his foot upon this mount, that is the Mount of Olives in which he's speaking, and shall cleave in twain, and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro, and the heavens also shall shake, because all, all the elements are in commotion, right? All of, and when the Lord manifests his presence, of course, it'll be like Mount Sinai. And the Lord shall utter his voice, and all the ends of the earth shall hear it, and the nations of the earth shall mourn, and they that have laughed shall see their folly, and calamity shall cover the mocker, and the scorner shall be consumed. And they that have watched for iniquity shall be hewn down and cast into the fire. That's from Isaiah, those who watch for iniquity are under a curse. What evil are you up to? I want to know all about you. I'm going to report you, da-da-da. You know, it's, what an attitude that is. Well, they will be cast down into the fire, and they shall be, Isaiah says, they'll be cut off among these people of the covenant. And the scorners and mockers are going to be so many of them because the Lord is going to catch everybody by surprise. He's going to follow all the patterns of the past that are types and shadows of what happens in the end time, but there's always a surprise factor. As Brigham Young said, the Gentiles, including us, will be so mistaken about Jesus' second coming as the Jews were about his first coming. So don't think you know it. Never assume that you know this or that or the other. Bury your head in the scriptures and analyze them, search them. Don't just study or read them.
You'll never get it that way. Then shall the Jews look upon thee and say, what are these wounds in thine hands and feet? Now he's quoting Zechariah, 14, I think, or 13. Then shall they know that I am the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord, quote Jehovah. That's one thing they never expected. For I will say unto them, these wounds are the wounds in which I was wounded in the house of my friends, his own friends, the Jews, his own people. And he was one, he was a Jew. I am he who was lifted up. I am Jesus that was crucified. I am the Son of God. A great discovery among the Jews. Notice they're the very last ones to believe of all, like Paul says, and other scriptures. Even all the other tribes will come in for the Jews. But there's two factions of Jews, as we mentioned before. There's the house of Judah, which is saved first, according to Zechariah, and then the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of David, who are these Jews that he appears to on the Mount of Olives. The others will long have been converted and call upon the Father in his name, as Jesus prophesied in 3rd Nephi. Then shall they weep because of their iniquities, and they shall lament because they have persecuted their king, the king of Zion, Jehovah, called the king of Zion in Isaiah. Then shall the heathen nations be redeemed, and they that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection, the more righteous part of the people who would have believed, etc., and shall be tolerable for them, and Satan shall be bound, shall have no place in the hearts of the children of men. Like he does now, he has place in all our hearts. If you let him, it's that easy. And that day when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise have received the truth. Notice how it defines wise here. Receive the truth, which means there's so much falsehood out there, only elect will get the truth, because all the rest will be deceived. Have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide, not other guides, and have not been deceived, because all levels below the elect will be deceived. Verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, like all the rest, but shall abide the day. And the earth shall be given unto them for their inheritance. And they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation, all through the millennial age. I mean, how plain are these scriptures? They keep saying the same things over and over and over. Why don't we get it? Why do we always think we're so above all of this, that we don't even need to study these things? will become so familiar with them until they are a part of us, until we know them inside out. And the Spirit bears witness to us. And we can connect all the scriptures together because of our knowledge of the book of Isaiah. We know where everything fits. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a liberating and empowering thing to, to reach that point in time. There's nothing obscure in the scriptures. There's nothing you have real questions about. Who puts it all together? If you don't have Isaiah, you can't put it all together. You always have some dark spots in your understanding, as we found out through these 24 lecture series. For well, the Lord shall be in their midst, and His glory shall be upon them. So where the Lord is in the midst, there you have His glory, and He will be their king and their lawgiver. He will be their king and their lawgiver. And it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, city of refuge, place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. The saints of the Most High God, the Father, like the three Nephites, translated beings who enter the Father's kingdom, unlike the nine. And the glory of the Lord shall be there, and the terror of the Lord shall also be there for the wicked, insomuch that the wicked will not come into it, and shall be called Zion. It shall come to pass among the wicked that every man that will not take his sword against his neighbor must needs flee unto Zion for safety, like Joseph Smith teaches. And there shall be gathered unto it out of every nation under heaven, every single nation on the earth, even the Aborigines in Australia. Well, why not? Why should they not be the elect of God? Even the headhunters in Borneo, people in Timbuktu, wherever. Isn't it going to be amazing to see all those people there? 
out of every single nation, and shall be the only people that shall not be at war with one another, and it shall be said among the wicked, Let us not go up to battle against Zion, for the inhabitants of Zion are terrible, wherefore we cannot stand. While it's really the Lord's presence there, and His power that is among them, that is terrible, for He lends His glory to us who attain those higher spiritual levels. And we can only do that through Him, through His grace and through the atonement. It's He who brings us into the presence of the Father. It doesn't happen any other way. It shall come to pass that the righteous shall be gathered out from among all nations. It shall come to Zion. So it's the elect who are gathered in Matthew 24. Here it's called the righteous, meaning that the righteous by definition are the elect, just men made perfect, overcome all of their iniquities, their generational dysfunctions, all their unwholesome emotions and everything. And in Isaiah, it's the house of Israel that is gathered. So you have the elect, the righteous, and the house of Israel. We help gather them. We are those who go out and gather them. And it shall come to Zion singing with songs of everlasting joy. And now I say unto you, keep these things from going abroad unto the world, that's Jesus speaking in his day, until it is expedient in me that you may accomplish this work in the eyes of the people and the eyes of your enemies. But it's also a type and shadow of our day, right? Because those 144,000 servants of God will be given latter-day commissions by the Lord himself. And we will do those works if it's us and in the eyes of all the people, in the eyes of the enemies, that they may know your works until you have accomplished the thing which I have commanded you. And when they shall know it, that they may consider these things. For when the Lord shall appear, he shall be terrible unto them, that fear may seize upon them, and they shall stand far off and tremble, and all nations shall be afraid because of the terror of the Lord and the power of his might. That's the wicked, right? To them he's this larger-than-life reality, where they always mistake him for something else. The coming of the great day of the Lord. So this is the day that John saw in vision. He was envisioned on the Lord's day, or the day of the Lord. Not a Sunday, but there in the end time, seeing and hearing it all. The day of the Lord, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the Hebrew prophets. The day of vengeance for the wicked and the year of the redeemed for the righteous. See, the day of Jehovah comes, Zechariah, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, speaking to the Jews specifically, because he was a prophet of the second temple period. When speaking to the Jews who came back from Babylon, the ten tribes were long gone and lost from history. I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem, and the city will be taken. The houses rifled, the women ravished, half the city will go into captivity, and the rest of the people won't be cut off from the city. But like Natan sees in that out-of-the-body experience that he had just recently, just a month ago or so. That's what he's, he's seeing all of this. And he's talking about it in great detail. There are visionaries out there that are just amazing with the things that the Lord allows them to see and talk about it, that tie in exactly with all of these scriptures. It's a wonderful witness that the Lord is doing this right now, in our day and age. Then will Jehovah go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. When was that? Well, with Joshua's armies, for example, when the sun stood still, they went into a different time zone, like Zenith and his armies fighting in the strength of the Lord. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will cleave down the middle toward the east and west, and there will be a very great valley. Half the mountain will remove north and half to south, and you will flee to the valley of the mountain, or mountains, for the valley of the mountain will reach Azal, and you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Jeru Judah, and Jehovah my God will come and all the saints with you, or with him. So he's coming first to the new Jerusalem, but then he comes to the old Jerusalem as well, after that. And then he comes in great glory to 
to the entire earth. That's the, that's the sequence in the scriptures. Here's the 88. Not many days hence, and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro as a drunken man. The sun shall hide his face and shall refuse to give its light, and the moon shall be bathed in blood. And the stars shall become exceedingly angry and cast themselves down as a fig that falleth from off the fig tree. And after your testimony cometh wrath. After whose testimony? Well, the last testimony is that of the 144,000. He's speaking to them as if he's, to the apostles in Jerusalem, as if he's speaking to them in the end time. After your testimony is the same testimony of Christ that the apostles had anciently. Cometh wrath and indignation upon the people. And, you know, if you want to link that to Isaiah, wrath and indignations are pseudonyms of the king of Assyria or the Antichrist. So first comes the peaceful testimony and then comes wrath for those who reject. For after your testimony cometh the time of earthquakes, cause groanings in the midst of her, men shall fall upon the ground, shall not be able to stand. And also cometh the testimony of the voice of thunderings, the voice of lightnings, the voice of tempest, the voice of the waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds, and the voice of nuclear holocausts, of course, part of it, as others have said and seen. And all things shall be in commotion, and surely men's hearts shall fail them, for fear shall come upon all people. And angels shall fly through the midst of heaven, crying with a loud voice, sounding with the trump of God, saying, Prepare ye, prepare ye, O inhabitants of the earth, for the judgment of our God has come. It's come now. There's a cutoff point. It's finally come. It's here. There's no going back. There's no wishful thinking now. It's all just reality. And behold, and lo, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him, and immediately shall appear a great sign in heaven, and all people shall see it together. And another angel shall sound his trump, saying, That great church, the mother of abominations, that made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of fornication, that persecuted the saints of God, that shed their blood, she who sitteth upon many waters and upon the islands of the sea, da da da. Okay, remember we covered this in the Zion of Babylon lecture, the great abominable church how that's really Babylon, but in Nephi's day, we call it that because it was, Babylon was still a political power. So he, he resorted to the same imagery. Imagery connects Babylon and the great Bible church. So, persecuted the saints of God, and then there were those Gentiles who end up rejecting the gospel and end up fighting against Zion, against, against the very people they were once part of. A large majority of us does that. So that's something to really, you know, be wary of and always watch and, and be careful, you know, what you do and what you decide and how you view things because how do you know you're not going to get diverted someday and, unless you're really solid in keeping the Lord's commandments and stay that course and not be tempted to go that direction with the majority. Behold, she's the tares of the earth. She's bound in bundles because the wicked are always bound, they're always bound by their iniquities and sins. It's like a bondage. They're bondage to sin and to transgression. And their eyes are blinded so they don't see. They think they see. They think they see clearly all your iniquity and his and da da da. But no. They're in bound bundles and her bands are made strong. No man can loose them. There reaches a point when it's impossible anymore. Therefore she is ready to be burned. And he shall sound his trump both long and loud and all nations shall hear it. And there shall be silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. And immediately after shall the curtain of heaven be unfolded as a scroll is unfolded after it is rolled up. The face of the Lord shall be unveiled and the saints that are upon the earth who are alive shall be quickened and be caught up to meet him. The saints. And they who have slept in their graves shall come forth. That's the saints. For their graves shall be opened and they shall be caught up to meet him in the midst of the pillar of heaven. That's his coming in glory. That's not his coming to the new Jerusalem individually or to the Jews 
which happens before that time. They are Christ's, the first fruits, the first fruits of the earth, they're called in Isaiah chapter 4. The first fruits of the earth, the first fruits were offered to God as an offering every, every spring and summer. And so these are the first fruits of the earth bearing fruit. And they're from the past and from the present and from that time. They who shall descend with him first, they, they're caught up into heaven and then they descend with him. And they who are upon the earth and in their graves were first caught up to meet him. And all this by the voice of the sounding of the trump of the angel of God. And after this, another angel shall sound, which is the second trump. And then cometh the redemption of those who are Christ at his coming. So there are the previous saints and then the ones who are alive, right? At Christ at his coming, who have received their part in that prison, which is prepared for them. I guess that was the spirit present. So these are the ones who passed on, maybe since the restoration of the gospel, perhaps, that they might receive the gospel and be judged according to men of the flesh. And again, another trump shall sound, which is the third trump, and then come the spirits of men who are to be judged and found under condemnation. Oh, I see. So we have the elect of God, then we have a terrestrial category, and then we have a third category, which are those who are still celestial or worse, perdition. And these are the rest of the dead, and they live not again until the thousand years are ended, neither again until the end of the earth. So the last resurrection is the resurrection of the telestial people, as DNC 76 says, and but the sons of perdition are not resurrected, as also DNC 76 says, as also Isaiah said. And another trump shall sound, which is the fourth trump, saying, there are found among those who are to remain until that great and last day, even the end, will remain filthy still. That would be the sons of perdition. And I don't know if there are any daughters of perdition. I kind of doubt that, but possible, I guess. Another trump shall sound, which is the fifth trump, which is the fifth angel who committeth the everlasting gospel, flying through the midst of heaven unto all nations, kindred tongues, and people. That's the mission of the elect of God, to gather the elect of Israel, the house of Israel out of all nations, kindred tongues, and people. And this shall be the sound of his trump, saying to all people, both in heaven and on earth, and that are under the earth, both in heaven and in earth and under the earth. Well, who sees that? Well, Spencer saw that, right? He saw one of the tribes of Israel in that place. I'm sure there are others. Jeremiah also says that they'll come out of the holes of the earth, or caverns of the earth, and every tongue shall confess while they hear the sound of the trump saying, Fear God and give glory to him who sitteth upon the throne forever and ever, for the hour of his judgment is come. And again, another angel to sound his trump, which is the sixth angel, so that's a lot of angels, isn't it? And uh, it's really an angelic time. Isn't it going to be a time of great manifestations of God's emissaries here? It'll be a, a glorious time. It's incredibly beautiful. She is fallen who made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It's the harlot of Babylon. It's, it's a great abominable church. Now she's fallen. Before that, she was given a warning. Finally, she falls, Isaiah 21 goes into the dust, Isaiah 47, book of Revelation. Again, another angel sounds his trumpet to the seventh angel. Ah, there's a seventh angel. See what he says, it is finished, it is finished. Are there seven dispensations? The Lamb of God has overcome and trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. We've discussed that. And then shall the angels be crowned with the glory of his might, and the saints shall be filled with his glory. Well, the angels are those who gather the elect, right? Matthew 24. But, there are also the 144,000, as explained in Doctrine and Covenant, and receive their inheritance and be made equal with him. Well, we shall see about that, because be made equal with him depends on which context, because there are different spiritual levels, right? There are the saints or the elect, and there's translated beings who are called seraphim in Isaiah. At which point they are made equal with him is not 
quite clear, and reveal the secret acts of men and the mighty works of God in the first thousand years. And then shall the second angel sound the trumpet reveal the secret acts of men and thoughts and intents of their hearts. The thoughts and intents of their hearts. Everything, everything all about them, wow. You'll be so transparent to everybody. How about that? And the mighty works of God in the second thousand years, and so on, until the seventh angel sound his trumpet, and he shall stand forth upon the land, upon the sea, and swear in the name of him who sitteth upon the throne, that there shall be time no longer, and Satan shall be bound, that old serpent, who is called the devil, he has lots of names too, doesn't he? Just like the Lord does. And shall not be loosed for the space of a thousand years. That's a thousand years of terrestrial time, as I made clear before, not telestial time, which is different. And then he shall be loosed for a little season that he may gather together his armies. And Michael, the seventh angel, haha, it's Michael, Father Adam. Even the archangel shall gather together his armies, even the hosts of heaven. And the devil shall gather together his armies, even the hosts of hell. I don't know what they would look like. Wouldn't they be awful to look at? Because <laughs> 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 if you know Isaiah, <laughs> if you know Isaiah, the people who are, you know, every time they ascend a spiritual level, they're recreated closer to the image in, his image and likeness, God's image and likeness, remember? But those who descend the spiritual level, they are decreated, so they don't even resemble themselves anymore. So what are they going to look like? Something awful, something abominable. We can have a little fun coming. And shall come up to battle against Michael and his armies, and then cometh the battle of the great God, and the devil and his army shall be cast away into their own place. Aha, I'm glad nobody, nobody else will be there. And they shall not have power over the saints anymore at all, as they do now. And they will so long as they're still around. They'll have power to harass you through third persons and directly through illnesses and disease. Yeah, they're all around us doing their thing. For Michael shall fight their battles and shall overcome him who seeketh the throne of him who sitteth upon the throne. So he is seeking God's throne in Isaiah 14 as well. The Antichrist seeks God's throne, even the Lamb. This is the glory of God and the sanctified, and they shall not anymore see death because they're translated or resurrected both. Spencer's vision, the visions of glory. Aha, you believe this? I found nothing in his book that contradicts the scriptures anywhere. That's why I like to speak about it so much. I also know the man personally and he's truly a humble saint of God, as much as anyone that I know on this earth. My perception of time is not as linear as it is now. Because when you go into a translated state, you go through in, in and out of time zones, terrestrial time and telestial time and celestial time. And you know that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years of telestial time, and so terrestrial time is somewhere in between. A whole day in Zion could amount to years of service on the other side of the portal or through the veil. I don't recall ever being confused about what time it was, what time I was in on either side of the portal or veil, but you have to remember that I was not actually in Zion but in vision at my home in bed. <laughs> After the vision ended and I had returned to my mortal body, sort of an out-of-the-body experience, the sequence and times of things became much more difficult to decipher. For this reason, the exact timing of the second coming is indistinct to me. It was a while after we arrived in Zion, perhaps no longer than three and a half years, which is half of that seven-year period that we've talked about, by the time, which defines the end time, it seems, by the time Christ came in glory, the work of gathering had been completed. We had worked night and day for all of those years to finish the work. And he's speaking of those translated beings, those 144,000 
and others. And notice how he uses the word we here because they are one cohesive unit and they act as such. And remember that covenant we talked about in DNC 88 verse 133, Art thou a brother? It's the we, 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 one for all, all for one. It's a covenant between equals, it's a parity covenant in the ancient or eastern emperor vassal covenants. That's why understanding Isaiah helps so much. We had gathered every single soul out of the entire world into Zion. Christ, Christ had sent us to. We had not missed a soul. When he came, we were actively waiting for the day. All the elect had been gathered. All the saints, or holy ones. All the just men made perfect, and women. There were millions of terrestrial people, the good and honorable of the earth, to whom we were not sent. They would abide the day of his coming, like it says in Isaiah, too. They're not gathered with the elect in that great exodus of the end time. And DNC 76, read that. They would abide the day of his coming, but they did not partake of the protection and glory of Zion prior to his coming. We did no work among the warring and evil, the telestial people, or the sons of perdition. We were only gathering the elect, those whom the Father had placed in Christ, in Christ's power, they that are Christ at his coming. Early one morning we beheld billowing clouds crossing the sky from east to west. We did not sleep, we were often gathered, they didn't sleep, they were translated, right? So we often gathered to watch the sun come up. This was very different, though, in this case. These clouds were pure, white, and billowing, rolling toward us from top to bottom like an unrolling scroll. There was no wind, no lightning, and the clouds had no dark underside. We had been actively watching for the day of his coming. Even minutes before we saw the billowing clouds, we did not know the day or the hour when he would return. But the instant we saw it, our hearts jumped into our throats and we cried aloud with joy and relief. He's coming, he's coming. All right, so, you know, when you're there and you're in that vision, and in any vision or experience, you know that you feel things. You innately and intuitively feel things that are part of that experience, that vision, that auditory or visionary experience. So, they, their hearts jumped into their throats. They had been waiting for it and they, they knew at the instant it happened. He is coming, he is coming. We cried with all, all the, every energy of our souls. Every soul in Zion and all of her cities felt our joy and ran outside to the other cities of Zion, scattered around like the one at Cardston he talked about, to see this long-awaited moment. All of the inhabitants of Zion and her cities were watching when he came. We all heard a voice speak to us individually. I heard my name spoken very tenderly. So. There's this voice, but it's a voice that's personal to each one individually, as happened to him in the temple when he was, at the time he was translated. His name sounded in his ears, and it was the Lord speaking directly to him. But when he comes in glory, all the elect of God and those higher hear that same voice calling their own name personally and individually, and with that name comes all that you are, that he sees in you. He had that same experience when the Lord appeared to him on his way to the, to the stake center. Remember that vision that he had? As before, everything that I am was contained within that sound, including all that Christ loved about me. Because Christ loves us unconditionally for who we are. No judgment. We judge ourselves. When you've had that experience, you know that there's no judgment involved. It thrilled me with unspeakable joy 
Everyone heard their own name at that time. I immediately recognized it as the voice of Jesus Christ, as did all of my fellow Zion dwellers. The good and honorable of the earth, whom we had not gathered, felt the spiritual magnificence of the moment and looked up. But they didn't hear their name called. In an instant, they began to rejoice as well, jumping toward heaven with their arms over their heads, as if trying at last to fly off the earth and into his arms. Uh-huh. So they, you know, they were trying to be translated, but they were not. Sorry. The benighted of the world, so there's three different categories again here, as before, perceive the sound as a mighty roaring and piercing sound, like this larger-than-life thing at the bottom of the mount, Mount Sinai, somewhat like an enormous wind screaming as a devastating earthquake rumbling toward them. Instantly, there was crushing terror in their hearts. They had not repented, they had not believed. They had rejected Christ. They were fighting against Zion. They were apostates. They were former members of the church. They were every other religion. Never believed in Christ. Or at that point, moment, they did not. They did not know that it was Jesus Christ returning and would not have believed anyone that said so. They thought it was another devastation coming upon them, or coming. Others thought it was a missile or a new weapon. Some of the enemies of Zion thought we had finally launched a mighty weapon at them. <laughs> As the cloud approached, it became apparent that there was a man standing in the cloud. Even a thousand miles away, every eye saw him approaching in the clouds of heaven. Like Isaiah says, all flesh shall see him at once. Chapter 40. Evil men fell to their knees and wept. Some took their own lives. The hardened among them turned their weapons toward the coming of Christ, the coming Christ, and opened fire. It would be the last act of defiance. But he explains that because rather than allow them to create, do more acts of defiance and therefore suffer more, it was a mercy to kill them right on the spot because they would perish when he did that. And that happened a number of times in their journey to Zion. Remember? If you've read the book, all makes so much sense theologically. We in Zion recognize his voice, and it was sweet and comforting to us. So that's a different take on the coming of the Lord than the wicked. His voice told us to return to the temple quickly. Now, he didn't say he told us, to, he just said his voice. You hear the voice and you instantly know what to do. By this time, there were many temples across the world because they were establishing Zion. All the 144,000 were engaged in that work, building temples. Some were Latter-day temples that had been upgraded to the millennial form. Remember, these stakes of Zion are all protected by the clouds of glory. So they can be building temples all over the place and no wicked can go there and harm them. Some were Latter-day temples that had been upgraded to the millennial form. In other words, for the millennial ordinances, unlike the ones now, or somewhat different, most were new, built during this prelude to the millennium. In other words, the mission of the 144,000. Each group gathered into their temples, some into dedicated church buildings, and even in homes the inhabitants had made holy, I guess where there was no temple, and the conference center in Salt Lake City. There was room enough for all who heard his voice. We dropped everything and ran. We didn't need to turn back to gather children or families. They all heard his call and came in that instant. Even infants heard and were brought by loving hands. We entered the temple through the outer temple that was dedicated to our tribe of Israel. So other tribes that were there would go through their 12 outer temples. For me and my family, most of my friends, it was the outer temple for Ephraim on the east side of the temple, which is the place of honor. We did not have time to change clothes, but each of us began glowing with purity that exceeded temple white. We were praising and singing and praying and rejoicing, spontaneously, of course. 
The day it was finally come, finally come, finally come. So they had been waiting for a long time. We gathered in the large assembly hall where our prophets began speaking to us, reading scriptures and rejoicing aloud in what was happening. We were all prepared and we sang new hymns we had never heard before with a mighty fervor. I think I might have told you that experience that I saw in a terrestrial glory, a group of people who were singing in perfect harmony a song or hymn that they had never known before and dancing perfect movements, coordinated movement, it was entirely spontaneous and they were rejoicing in it. It's beautiful. And this is what he's seeing here. We sang new hymns we had never heard before with mighty fervor. Well, in harmonies, of course, and perfect coordination. To my ears, it was the most beautiful sound humans had ever produced. Brightness and glory surrounded us, penetrated us, cleansed us even further. You never be too clean, I guess, for the Lord. We were still in the temple because with the coming of the Lord, then His presence with you just transformed you, as it does all of those who have visions of Him. We were still in the temple, but the roof and part of the walls became transparent so that we could see the sky. We could hear angels singing with us, blowing trumpets that shook the earth. Now, I've talked about you know, angels singing even through choirs today, right? And that beautiful Lamb of God that was performed that I heard, where I heard angels singing for the first time in my life singing through the voices of those who were singing. It was beautiful. Angels singing with us, right there, and then you can see them, not just hear them, and blowing trumpets that shook the earth. At last we saw Jesus Christ coming from the east, surrounded by billowing clouds and numerous angels, all singing and praising the Father. Even though he was still hundreds of miles away, we could see his face clearly. He was clothed in spotless white with a red sash around his waist. So he's done with the total red garb, because that was during his descent phase that he suffered so. And now he comes in glory, which is his ascent phase. And we too go through these descent and ascent phases every time we are reborn to a higher spiritual level, as we've discussed in other lectures from Isaiah. His face was not angry, but he was not smiling. He was coming to cleanse the earth. What was left to cleanse? The wicked had been mostly destroyed, but there were still a few left, as we saw. He approached very quickly and was soon above us, the temple was no longer visible to us. In other words, everything opened up just like it does to translated and resurrected beings that walk through walls and so forth. We were being taken up. We all felt the pull of gravity begin to release us. I saw the clouds growing closer. Even as my soul expanded as broad as the universe, that's when you see everything as God sees it. And then the vision closed. This is all I saw. I could say I wish it were more, but in all truth, it was all that I could take in. I was fully enraptured, filled with exquisite joy and rejoicing. Anything more than this would have been overwhelming and incomprehensible in my mortal state, and I would not have been able to retain the memory, nor would he have been able to come back. As Isaiah could not, he went to the seventh heaven, and was told that if he saw any more, he could not come back. But there was much more to see, of course. Right, so there we are. How about that? We did it. Thank you so much for your attendance here. And for those who are watching the webcast, thank you for tuning in. And hopefully we'll have this series done by May Conference. And we hope to see all of you there. It should be a great event. A spiritual feast and also spiritual entertainment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.